Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast. I am your host, Brian Carroll, and today we are going to take a look at the current protocols in place for when someone suffers a concussion. These protocols are what a lot of sports organizations follow to help athletes return safely to the game. However, are these protocols truly effective? Is an athlete really ready to go back to full participation within a couple weeks of a brain injury? Our guest today, Dr. Brandon Brock, shares a lot of information about what truly happens to the body from a brain injury. His protocols are much more thorough than any other protocol out there because he knows that most of these athletes will need to use their brains when they are older. But before we dive into this episode, this episode is brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens. Their greens powder is made from 75 whole food ingredients to support five main areas of health, including the immune system, digestive system, adaptogenic support for your adrenals and HPA access, antioxidants, and energy production. Sarah and I have been using this greens powder for the last month, and it is the best greens powder either of us have ever used. With all the nutrients you get from one scoop, it helps you to get most of your micronutrient needs in just one drink. To learn more, go to summitforwellness.com greens. Now, let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Brandon Brock about concussions and how to protect the brain from brain injuries. Dr. Brandon Brock is a practitioner in Dallas, Texas, who holds a doctorate in family nursing practice from Duke University and a doctorate in chiropractic. He has a a diplomate in functional neurology, nutrition, conventional medicine, and integrated medicine as well. He holds fellowship status in childhood disorders, neurology, electrodiagnostic medicine, and neurochemistry, and is a global clinical research scholar from Harvard Medical School. Thanks for coming on to the show, Dr. Brock. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Of course. And uh, since you are doing so much stuff with functional neurology, I would love to know what made you so interested in neurology in the first place and um, what kind of guided your path to start getting into different ways of practicing neurology? Yeah, I just, I like neurology because, you know, I had obviously did and still do have a, a fascination with you know, chiropractic care. And I always thought that chiropractic was really neurology. And I always wanted to learn more about what it is that I was doing when I was applying either rehabilitation or chiropractic care. And it just got me into the nervous system. And then whenever I started learning more about neurology, I loved neurology more than anything else. And uh, because it's one of those areas where there's there's a, a lot of people that practice in the field of neurology and they're good at giving some some diagnoses, but I wanted to get to the point where I could actually help change brains, not just say, "Oh, your brain is messed up." And uh, it's kind of the ongoing joke about neurology is it's it's a profession that is really geared towards around just making a diagnosis and not doing a whole lot of effective treatment. And what I found in functional neurology is it's the exact opposite of that. So when you add it all up. I fell in love with neurology. I love functional neurology because it offered answers, not just 
not just diagnoses. And neurological diseases are so debilitating that, you know, somebody's got to do something about it. Right. And a lot of the stuff that you work on now is uh, stuff to do with traumatic brain injuries or concussions. Um, And you definitely take a different approach to that, which I love, instead of the typical rest for seven days and then you're back to uh, whatever activities that you were currently doing. So can you talk a little bit about uh, just some of the work that you're doing with concussions? Why why is concussions is something that you're so focused on? Yeah. Um, well, one of my doctorate degrees was really prefaced on traumatic brain injury. And in particular, we were looking at mild traumatic brain injury. And uh, those that <clears throat> continue to have mild traumatic brain injury on to the point to where they were really post-concussive, meaning their their symptoms did not resolve. And so these were people that were supposed to be functional, but but they really couldn't maintain a high level of functionality. So we worked on ways and methods to get them out of being stuck in a minimally concussed sort of episode. And I think that was very, very rewarding because that represents the larger majority of people that are suffering from brain injury. And uh, doing things to activate a part of the brain. Well, well, first of all, let me kind of say this. Figuring out the part of the brain that doesn't work that well. And then figuring out the other conditions that can perpetuate that and then locking it all together into a treatment paradigm that treats them on the cellular level, the synaptic level, and then the overall cognitive level in in various brain regions has been vastly more effective than just telling somebody to just sit around until it goes away. When it comes to concussions, a lot of people think of concussions as uh, something that occurs when you take a blow to the head. Is that true, or can you get concussions in other ways? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of people that get neck injuries, anything that will abruptly stop head movement can allow the brain to continue to move because of inertia and force. And it can kind of ricochet around the intracranial vault. So those things can cause, you know, head injury symptoms. It's really interesting if you look at a side the side, you know, comparison between a whiplash injury per se and a head injury, they look very, very similar. And a lot of people that get head injuries get neck injuries. And a lot of people that get neck injuries get head injuries. And then the other thing that we see is people that have various blood brain barrier markers that are sort of broken down and, and inflammation is allowed to get into the central nervous system. We're seeing these people sort of chemically concuss with very little trauma because the cells that create and sustain inflammation during a head injury become primed because the outside inflammatory factors get into the central nervous system and continue to mediate that process. Now that is super interesting. And um, since a concussion can happen from uh, neck injuries and not direct blows to the head, um, I'm curious about helmets. So uh, we see a lot of uh, concussion technology going into the design of these helmets. However, if you get hit and it's not directly to the head and you can still get a concussion, then are these helmets doing a lot uh, for protection from concussions? I mean, obviously they're going to protect the head from, you know, getting split open or anything like that. But from a concussion standpoint, is it doing much? Yeah, they're finding that, I mean, the technology I know is improving, but overall it's very, very poor. 
It's not doing – as a matter of fact, I think – I don't know if it was last year or the year before last, they did a, a really good – one of the number one papers of traumatic brain injury for the whole year was sort of a synopsis or breakdown of the safety of all the major helmets, and uh, it looked really bad. Um, and when I say bad, it's not that these guys aren't trying hard and doing a good job. It's just there's no way you can stop uh, what we would consider a mild traumatic brain injury. Again, when you're trying to pat it from the outside uh, and keeping something from the inside from moving, it, it's just impossible. I'll, I'll give you an example. There's really only one creature that we know of that can really do this, and it's a woodpecker. And, you know, they bang their head on wood, right? Mm-hmm. Well, they have a they have a tongue that goes in their mouth and wraps around their brain from the inside, and it, it keeps it stable. You know, we don't really have technology like that right now. They're doing all kinds of stuff with trying to occlude the jugulars a little bit to increase pressure in the head and things like that. But I mean, there's still danger even to that. So, helmet technology. The reason why I see it as a little bit dangerous is because if you give this gigantic athlete that's very, very skilled and very maneuverable and you say this helmet is going to protect you, so just go for it, and they hit themselves harder and harder and harder, I'm getting worried that the tremendous skill of the athlete is going to get turned into pure physics. And those pure physics are going to be greater than what the helmet can really withstand, and that is more damage. You know, a lot of people ask me what to do, what to do. And I'm like, I don't know, take their helmets off. They do it in rugby. There's, there's less head injuries. Yeah. And that's actually a really interesting point. Cause when you have this false sense of security of a helmet protecting your head, then you're more likely to put your head at risk. You don't really learn the mechanism to protect your head, which is very important to the survival of your body. Um, whereas like you said, rugby, where they don't protect their head, they learn pretty quick to protect their head. Otherwise it's going to really rock their world. So that is a super interesting point to make. Yeah. I mean, if you teach somebody to use their head cause it's covered and it's going to be okay. You know, a lot of these people don't know. They're just, they just want to play football. They don't understand any of the neurochemistry or any of that stuff behind it. So they think they're safe until, you know, they're 35 years old and they can't figure out how to get to the grocery store. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of big implications with that. So um, speaking of concussions and getting multiple of them, are the different levels of severity of concussion or is concussions pretty universal across the different types? Yeah. I mean, this is one of those things that's really kind of debatable. And what we can kind of find is, you know, there's mild, moderate and severe um, traumatic, mild traumatic brain injuries. I'm sorry, traumatic brain injuries, mild being one of them. You know, and it kind of looks as if a lot of the literature is saying a mild traumatic brain injury is really, you know, you were, you weren't knocked unconscious for longer than 30 minutes, you know, and there's three different kinds of amnesia and you didn't really have any of that for longer than 24 hours. That's a big, broad, swooping kind of issue, right? I mean, 30 minutes is a long time to be knocked out. I think we can all agree. But if you see moderate or severe head injuries, these are people that are sometimes maimed. They never get their function back. So really, I think mild traumatic brain injury, and I think one of the ways that it's going is it's going to be broken down into subcategories. And then there's different types 
of uh, mild traumatic brain injuries. You know, there's the emotional ones. There's the ones that have physical symptoms, somatosensory symptoms. So there's really different types of of kind of clusters of symptoms that are much more predominant with different types of head injuries. And it depends on where you get hit. So, you know, then if somebody keeps these symptoms in a mild category, so if it's a mild traumatic brain injury, there's been some really interesting papers that have come out lately. Um, They're doing all this research on head injuries. And what they've done is they're treating people with head injuries sometimes that have had a head injury for only two weeks. And they're like, look, they got better. Well, the literature says that they should get better even if left untreated within three months. So we really can't do a treatment paradigm or research on people unless they're past the three to to four month time period in a mild category where you should have resolved. If you haven't resolved, now you're post-concussive and recovering spontaneously becomes much, much, much less. If you treat those people and get the vast majority better, now you know you're doing something. That um, So that's actually pretty interesting that the mild concussion is such a broad spectrum because you would then say that pretty much most of concussions that are in athletics would be considered mild. Even if someone's just stumbling off of the field um, and they don't know where they are, that would still be considered a mild concussion if we're following those guidelines. Yeah, and mild concussions can be coupled with other things that are disastrous, like subdural bleeds, epidural bleeds, um, even small fractures. You know, so when you look at just the pure definition of concussion, it does not equal the totality of neurological diagnosis. And I think that that's one of the things that makes it difficult whenever they say, who should be evaluating these injuries? And somebody goes, well, I went to a concussion clinic. And it's like, okay, and they know how to classify concussion, but they don't know how to evaluate for subdural. They don't know how to evaluate for, you know, somebody that has, um, you know, a major laceration of the brachial plexus. So now they have a stinger that's gone beyond a stinger and they can't move their arm. Or there's a, a lot of really bad, like possible fractures or just even contusions, you know, real bad cerebral edema these things can get very serious. So if people are cleared or not treated appropriately, it's because of the other things that are encompassed in that diagnosis of a neurological disorder that's part of traumatic brain injury. And can you dive into some of the problems um, and symptoms that usually occur after a concussion? Uh, And these would be problems that typically happen and not um, uh, ones that are more one-off cases. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the obvious things is, you know, people becoming disoriented. I mean, it's it's the telltale thing. You, know, you can look at them in the face. They kind of look absent. They don't exactly know maybe the day, the time, what they're doing, what team they're on. Some people are a little bit better at it than others whenever they get hit. But you can just see that look of absence. I think a lot of people have been watching maybe football or something like that on TV. And when that person gets up, you can just see that look of they're gone. And, uh, you know, that's one thing. And then eye speed significantly changes. Eye accuracy, uh, accuracy significantly can potentially change. Um, mood can potentially change. You know, the ability to have balance and have good reflexes can change, which to be honest with you, if that happens and you have slow eye speed and slow body reaction times, and we put you back out in the game, you're just going to get re-injured. Um, 
And then later on down the road, we see things that are very, very sustainable. So they, they, they stick around and these symptoms are like, uh, photophobia. You know, they're, they're really having a difficult time with loud noises or, or bright lights, or they have ringing in their ear. And then sometimes they're very emotional with that. Some people get, uh, the impulsive, they can't inhibit some of their own emotions. And then of course there's depression, anxiety, and insomnia. And insomnia is probably one of the most common ones um, that we see also. So we have about 22 different questionnaire parameter type situations where we classify them. And then we have, you know, a good four or five different tests, depending on what we're looking for. We have everything from a DTI imager to a functional EEG all the way down to, to visual studies and then, you know, a physical examination. And uh, the slow eye movement, um, that is something that would be really difficult for someone to uh, fake. So are you able to uh, visually see the slow eye movement um, if you're assessing someone or do you use some kind of technology to uh, track and measure their eye speed? Well, it's really interesting. Now they're developing little devices you can just put on people's face and say, follow this. And, you know, when they do like circular pursuit movements and stuff like that, it, it they fail. And um, they're trying to get things like that on the sidelines because, again, some people are much more skilled at passing these things. Or there are some coaches and staff that are not as either willing to or as capable of performing these tests. So it's really easy when you just say, here's a, you know a, a good old-fashioned eye test. You either pass it or you don't. Here's a balance test. You either pass it or you don't. It doesn't matter what you say. If you can't perform, then you you can't perform. And that's going to keep you safe. And we, we need to come up with more objective ways. That way the parents don't get villainized, the kid doesn't get villainized, or the coach doesn't get villainized by either making somebody sit out or some, make somebody play. And a lot of these um, measurements too, when you're – a lot of times you do like an initial assessment to be able to track uh, – uh, athletes progress, right? So, uh, when they do get hit, then you can look back at their previous results and make the comparisons to see how they're doing. However, if, you know, if an athlete is playing, uh, more often than just like during a high school season or something like that, uh, then their initial assessment could be while they are concussed or still, um, being impaired by a previous concussion. So, uh, would that be one of the reasons why you think that they need to come out with some, uh, better ways to do testing? Yeah, well, I've heard this argument a whole lot. Um, you know, that somebody will either water down their baseline study. So if they get hurt, it'll look the same if they do their best. And then I've heard that some of these things can't detect previous concussions, and what's really interesting is some of the, the newer, uh, you know, some of the computerized concussion software and stuff. A lot of people say that, but they're not really certified on how to use the test. Most of these tests, you know, without name dropping any of them, there are some that you can clearly see the effort that's applied. And there's things that are kind of booby trapped or built into the test to where you can read it and say suboptimal effort was given here or there's really something going on. We need to go back and do a history and find out how many times this person has been hurt. And if they've been hurt, then the the responsibility of the staff or whoever's overseeing that, or the, even the parents or the patient, the responsibility at that point in time is, you know, saying, look, man, you're, you're at the cusp of having 
not just another new concussion, but you're still maybe recovering from the other one, you're going to be at a super high risk. And so if you have those people, and then there's a couple of lab markers that we know make you much more prone for neurodegenerative problems after you've been hit. You know, if you if you really did a good job and put some of these things together, you might be able to kind of walk up to somebody and say, you should maybe think about doing a different sport, preferably one that doesn't require a helmet. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, so uh, since we're talking about uh, problems and symptoms that occur from a concussion, can you talk about what actually happens within the brain itself? And then how can that uh, change the way the rest of the body is functioning? Yeah, so the first thing is the brain will the brain will bounce around, and of course that can we'll just call it bruise the outer surface, which can cause damage. You know, we would call that a contusion or a concussion, and and this is in the world of mild traumatic, moderate or severe traumatic brain injury, right? And it can also shear forward and backwards, which you know can damage the pituitary. It can shear vessels. It can shear the lining of the brain. Um, it can cause, you know, significant external and internal damage because it has a rotational stress on it as well, not just a stress where it's bouncing around the skull. So as it rotates around the brainstem, it can alter the vital centers, in particular, the vestibular apparatus, you know, where all of the vest the vestibular centers integrate. So you can get a, a centrally mediated vestibulopathy. You can end up getting all kinds of vital function changes. There's a lot of nausea, respiratory changes. Some people have, you know, autonomic issues where they can't stand up well without passing out or their bowel or bladder changes. And so when your bowel or bladder changes or your vagal nerve, the vagal output changes, they've shown that within 20 to 30 minutes, your gut becomes leaky. And so now you absorb proteins that creates inflammation. And during a head injury, um, I've just talked about sort of some of the architectural things that happen, but from a cellular perspective, all of your energy kinetics change, your mitochondria changes, the way you utilize sugars change, and then all of the inflammatory cells of the brain, they need to clean up debris, and these are microglial cells. So you become a little bit more prone towards a pro-inflammatory state because you have to clean things out. If you don't clean things out and you leave debris, these are called damps. And damps are just sort of like piles of clutter. And the immune system can tag this. And now you have an autoimmune issue to your brain. So one of the problems is, is we're finding that people get a head injury. They get all this architectural change. The blood-brain barrier opens up. The gut barrier opens up. Inflammation comes in. It goes up. We get damps. Um, they immediately get anti-inflammatories, which shuts down the inflammatory response. The debris is not cleared out. And then they end up getting something like brain autoimmunity. So it becomes a vicious loop of head injury, leaky blood-brain barrier, further inflammation. And here's the really bad thing. Those cells that create inflammation to clean everything up, after the first head injury, it takes probably 14 to 30 days for those things to calm down. If you get concussed again during that time period, they'll probably stay on for about 16 weeks, maybe 12 weeks. If you get another concussion during that time period, they just stay on forever. So you're constantly chemically reconcussing without any trauma. And when you look at this, this is a sustainable hypothesis. 
which points towards neurodegenerative changes that lead to CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And this is based off a lot of work, uh, you know, that was done by Blaylock and uh, Maroon's group, which were some of the original guys that did the NFL work. So once the blood-brain barrier is open, and now you have that inflammatory response happening in the brain, that is something that uh, most people doing these uh, external assessments won't be able to uh, notice. So when an athlete gets um, uh, sent back to the playing field in seven days because um, some of these tests came back that they were fine, and then they go and they re-injure themselves, then you're going into this kind of endless loop of uh, keeping that inflammatory response on high alert. Is that correct? Yeah. And this is why a lot of people go back and they're like, I'm ready to go back. Well, it's because they have a high functioning brain, so they don't look so bad. But for the most part, those cells are still primed. Okay. And so now they get half the force and they end up developing twice the symptoms. And this is when they usually come in to see us because they did one, you know, they had one head injury. They did pretty good. They went back a little too early or they went back as quick as they could because they were, you know, feeling fine. And I really don't think head injuries should, I really don't think head injuries should go back, you know, within three weeks. I really think there should be a mandatory set out time, no matter how you feel. If you were deemed concussed and you had low performance afterwards, even if you recovered within a day or two, I think, especially in young people, you know, most of these people are not going to become professional athletes. They're going to have to use their cortex to think. And so I think we probably need to do something to protect them. And I know now they've got a lot of sports where if you've had three concussions within a certain time period, you're done, Hmm. which is a great rule. Yeah, that is a pretty good rule because, like you said, the percentage of people that become professional athletes is pretty small. So you're going to need to use your brain at some point. Um, So when you have all this inflammation going on in the brain, what does that do to uh, different hormonal responses in the body? Well, most of the time, inflammation equals a reduction in the hypothalamo-pituitary output. So one of the things that we saw in some of our work was a a pretty dramatic decrease in growth hormone, which is extremely crucial in creating synaptogenesis after the injury. The other thing that we noted is there was a lot of males that were becoming hypogonadic, so their testosterone went uh, down. And then another thing that we noted is the brain really keeps the immune system going, and the immune system keeps the brain going. So there's a loop there. So we found a lot of people that were getting, from what we could tell by some of the cytokine studies that we did, was that when the brain becomes damaged, the immune system doesn't work well. And then when the immune system doesn't work well, it allows for the brain to be further damaged. It's sort of like a brain-immune, immune-brain loop. So it makes it to where things like little infections that you have that are sort of being kept at bay now become expressive, and that creates more inflammation. Um, or you're just inflamed in general, and so now it's going back up and damaging the brain. Um, so between hormones, creating autoimmunity, creating sustained inflammation, um, and changing growth factors and growth hormone and brain-derived neurotropic factor, and then the other thing is all of your neurotransmitters start to go away. So 
your serotonin may drop, your GABA may drop, your glutamate may go up. And this is why people are very easily excitable, but they can't slow things down, like sleep. They can't relax. They can't sleep. Um, and they're constantly thinking, maybe perseverating on things, and they're having a difficult time just sort of relaxing. So we can see the neurochemistry and the immunochemistry, and we can see the neuroendocrine issues all at work with these head injuries. And, and really, the way the literature looks, if you read it, you, you can't ignore it anymore. It has to be part of the assessment for a head injury. So when you get a patient that comes in that has had some sort of head injury, do you have like a phases of recovery protocol that you follow? Like they need to make it through each phase before you would release them back to uh, whatever activity that they like to do? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I think we, we kind of loosely have that. What we found out is that everybody's so different that it's very, very difficult for us to make sort of a just a, a generalized statement. Um, but, you know, of course, we want everybody to pass our neurocognitive testing. We want everybody to pass uh, their balance testing, have better eye speed. And we want them to really be able to exercise full out with no symptoms. And what most colleges are doing now is if somebody's coming back to play and they're working out and they develop symptoms during their workout, and this is with no contact, right? So they're just out there working out, giving it their best, and they start developing symptoms. They you know, they have a tendency to pull these people out. They really pretty much have to be asymptomatic during their workouts. Um, and then we progressively allow people to go back to whatever kind of contact they were in. I personally don't like anybody having contact. Now, they can go work out during that first 30 days, but I don't want contact where there's the risk of a head injury within that 30 days. That's that's, that's kind of my own personal advice. I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that's a protocol anywhere, but it definitely makes sense based upon what I know physiologically. And then, you know, a lot of times by the time we get done treating somebody, they're, they're actually in better shape than they were before they hit their head. But, you know, that's not, that's not everybody. So when someone initially gets concussed, what is the first uh, uh, thing that you want to do to start um, to help them in the recovery phase? Well, I start, I start treating them nutritionally. Actually, um, we give them rest. We take them away from a lot of uh, super high, you know, they are a bit sensitive. So we try to keep them away from too much brain stimulation. Um, sometimes we'll alter the amount of, you know, MCTs and, you know, ketogenic types of things. And we'll lower some of the simple sugars and carbohydrates because their glycolytic pathways aren't that great anymore. And then we may fast them a little bit. We'll get them away from overstimulation. And then we'll give them things to really enhance their mitochondria so they don't lose all the energy kinetics in their brain and they keep their, their cell volume. So we do have some nutrition protocols that we use depending on what phase we get you in. We don't usually get people in the acute phase. Most people have been you know, concussed anywhere from 1 to 16 years when they come and see us. You know, because where do people go for an initial concussion? Primary and they go to the doctor. hospital. Yeah, and they go to their at, you know PCP or they go to the hospital, and they don't come to us until all else has failed. To be real honest with you, now I do get some car crashes and stuff like that where people come in, but um, still, most of the moderate and severe ones they go to the hospital where they should be, and we get the minor ones 
and the minor ones are only a problem when everything else has failed. And in order for us to be any different than any of the other primary care providers, we have to do more extensive, more telling exams, tests, and labs so that we can give the whole story and say, look, this is why you're not healing. Because what we found is the people that weren't resolving spontaneously, up to 70% of them had either an autoimmune disease, an infectious disease, or a gastrointestinal disorder along with their head injury. And so we think that some of those inflammatory issues that are underlying or resonating behind the head injury is why it's not just following the standard of healing and they're not resolving on their own. That's super interesting. So you see more of a connection through the whole body instead of just one thing um, uh, influencing everything else. That's super fascinating. I also love that you um, touch on using nutrients or food as a way to start recovering from a concussion because you don't hear anybody ever talk about the foods that uh, people are eating and how that can influence the inflammatory response. So uh, when it comes to food, are you also looking at the quality of food, um, like the way the food is uh, raised or anything like that? Or are you more looking at the macronutrient profile, kind of like what you were talking about with uh, more of a ketogenic approach? Uh, would you are you just looking more at increasing fats, reducing carbohydrates, or are you looking at the quality of that as well? Well, we've got some great stuff now. Now we have exogenous ketones, we have exogenous MCTs, um, you know, and those are pretty fascinating what they do for brain. They are actually fuel for brain, and everybody thinks that it has to be simple sugars or, or glucose, and that's that's just not true. Um, but we don't put them on those diets forever. We may do it for a certain period of time. The other thing is, especially early on, we do more stuff to enhance the mitochondria. We don't do a lot of stuff to stop the inflammatory response because I really need that inflammatory response to happen so that it will clear out debris. Now, there are situations where that's not the truth. If somebody has so much swelling and inflammation in their brain that they have inter, you know, cranial pressure changes, then they're going to need things like mannitol or really high powered diuretics or, you know, even sometimes, you know, actually drilling a hole in their head and relieving pressure. And that's why I say these people really need to be evaluated by somebody that knows what they're doing, because there is a, a an acute critical care component to these head injuries that is of the utmost importance. But then there's also this sort of like, OK, you're going to live, see you later, go home from the hospital and there's nutrition that can be utilized that is fantastic. And then I would say there's medication that we utilize on patients all the time that help them sleep and stuff like that. Because, you know, sometimes you can't just give somebody a nutrient and they sleep. They, they need a medication. And if somebody stays up for two or three days, you're running the risk of them becoming borderline psychotic. Hmm. And then do you also see, um, issues on the micronutrient levels as well? Like, do you see a, a reduction in vitamins or minerals or um, see how the body is utilizing uh, some of those minerals in a different way than what you would like? Well, we definitely saw changes in fat-soluble vitamins with people that, got, that started to get gut changes. Um, and I guess to kind of go, I'll kind of tie this into part of your last question that I didn't answer well, and that is the quality of food. I mean, I would always love the quality of food to be organic, you know, GMO free, 
all those things, you know, the chicken was running out in a field and nobody was messing with it, you know, whatever. We're not going to get that all the time. What I would say is just lower your caloric intake and don't overindulge because a lot of times the fasting with the exogenous ketones and the MCTs and controlling simple sugars makes an enormous difference when we use things um, like, you know, Nrf2 activators or mitochondrial enhancers and some things that can enhance neurotransmitters, especially acetylcholine enhancers, as long as there's no autonomic problems. Um, and then really just kind of get them into a, a point where we can activate their brains a little bit faster than what they probably would in a traditional environment because we want to get that brain back online. You know, and then with food, it's always we want them to stay hydrated. And, you know, it really kind of is crazy because you see people like in professional sports, they get hit in the head and then they're getting these really, really, really high glycemic simple sugars, which is one of the things that promotes inflammation. So I've never really understood that, but hey, whatever. And so there's a lot of dietary things that we try to do. And, and there's 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 no diet that's going to replace what a drug does. And then there's no drug that replaces what diet does. They're completely made for different reasons. And sometimes we need to combine them. Sometimes we don't. We have some patients that have seizures after their head injury, and they need to be on anti-seizure medications until they you know are under control for a certain period of time. So uh, when uh, you're working with people and you're pulling out, um, you know, certain foods and you're having them kind of switch their diet, are you also doing uh, taking measurements of uh, different markers to see how they're progressing with their recovery? And then if so, what are those markers that you're looking for and what are the tests that you like to run? Well, there's some there's some great micronutrient tests out there that'll look. And of course, uh, you know, just like what I was saying a minute ago, when you when you get damage to the brain and you get damage to the vagal system and you get a leaky gut, you got to worry about your fat soluble vitamins going down A, D, E, and K. Um, and, and we did see quite a drop in vitamin D and head injury patients. But from an epidemiological perspective, we have to wonder, is that really endemic to just head injury patients? It's not. It's also endemic to autoimmune patients without head injury and stuff like that. We just know that it seemed low, uh, extremely low, like, you know, under 20. Um, there's some labs out there now that run total brain antibody tests. So I can look at antibodies that have developed to the cerebellum inflammatory markers, along with blood brain barrier markers, along with neuro, you know, neurotransmitter antibodies. And then it ties that in with, do they have an underlying virus? We can run these labs. And then there's some genetic markers that go along with it that will tell us, you know, should you be taking headshots anyway? And none of these are foolproof, but when you add them all up and then put it together with your other tests and then put it together with your other physical exam findings, it does really start to add up. And you start creating a risk factor um, for someone, a risk profile. Yeah, or what you do is, is you really draw out an individual pattern for every single person. And look, it's really, and, and this is goes back to your original question. Okay. The person has a mild traumatic brain injury. What does that really mean? Because I've never seen two mild traumatic brain injuries. When you boil it down to every single marker, I've never seen two look the same. Hmm. So how can we standardize anything? We can't. All we can do is make some rules that will keep people in general safe 
And then you got to have practitioners that are trained well enough to look at this and not just marginalize some of these things as, you know, somebody taking advantage of the system by saying this test is good or that test is good. You got to use every test for what it's worth. And when you add it all up, it, it does have meaning. So since everybody carries cell phones now and everybody spends so much time on screens, does screen time also play a factor in um, the recovery from a concussion? Can it uh, elevate symptoms or anything or is is it not a big deal? Well, it seems like there's quite a bit of literature coming out showing that electromagnetic frequencies from any of these devices is perpetuating uh neurological problems, meaning that it doesn't recover well, and it's interfering with the with the, the body's own electromagnetic capacities, which we know changes with head injury. So one of the things that we've started doing is, is using different devices to work, not only with purification of the air, but also with purification of electricity, are trying to reduce some of those magnetic frequencies that interact with our, our body's own electromagnetic frequencies. And we're finding that we think it's making a difference. You know, like I said, you add a bunch of little things together and it ends up being the difference maker. But if you just want to hang all your treatment on one drug or one nutrient, it, it usually fails unless the person just spontaneously resolves. And we found that up to 50% of people don't. And then uh, one of the big questions that I have for you is in regards to a practitioner being able to evaluate someone that isn't willing to tell you what's going on. And uh, for instance, like we work with middle school, high school and college athletes, middle school athletes, they will tell you instantly that their head hurts. They'll tell you what's going on. You know, they'll tell you they're dizzy or anything like this, which gives you an idea of what's what just happened to them. High school athlete, they're starting to get a little bit smarter and they know that they want to play. So if they say certain trigger words, then they won't be able to play. So they're less likely to tell you that their bell got rung. And then at the college level, a lot of times people have scholarships on the line. They have schooling on the line. So they won't say anything because, um, you know, it could be it could cost them the rest of their career or it could cost them their scholarships, uh, which they don't want to lose. However, a lot of the college athletes that we see constantly have headaches or once they're done with college and they talk about all the headaches that they have. So how can we assess these people and be able to, um, you know, see through their bullshit and be able to, uh, express to them how important it is to um, talk about these head injuries and being able to, um, you know, take care of them before it gets to a point where it's irreversible. Well, I think you make some great points here. And I like the way you broke down the age categories, because I think you're 100% right. Um, you know, the younger kids, sometimes they don't want to play. So they'll just say, hey, look, I don't feel good. The older you get and the cooler it is to be an athlete, you know, you don't want to be out. And then, of course, if you're trying to go to college, every every second matters if somebody's watching you. And then if you're a profession, professional, that's how you make money. One of the things I tell people, they ask me this question all the time. This is probably one of the most common questions I'm asked. First of all, if you've examined a thousand patients with head injuries, you start to just and this, this is really a terrible answer, and I'm going to give you something a little bit more concrete than this, but you really start to kind of see it. 
and you can kind of start to say, this person is way more injured than they're saying. And then you can look at some people and say, you know, this person should just get up and move and leave because they're not that hurt. But other than that, what I would say, and to be as respectful as I can to athletes, I would say that, of course, these baseline tests are good. And doing tests that have various coefficients built in, they can tell you if they're, you know, giving good effort or not. And if they're not, you know, somebody needs to sit down and find out why they're somaticizing or they're actually, you know, not giving it their all. And then there needs to be good practitioners around a lot of these athletes that are becoming more high, you know, they're higher level athletes that actually does a good examination on them. And I think that maybe it's worth it to put more money into our athletes on the front end and trying to vet who is and who is not going to be able to tolerate these blows rather than being all worried and having to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on the other end of it. I would like to see research go into the identification and prevention rather than so much of the, well, what are we going to do with them now that this has happened? Of course, we want both. But it sure would be nice to be able to say to somebody, you know, we're not trying to discriminate against you. We're not trying to tell you what to do. But we're giving you an informed consent that says you are at a higher risk. Now, play at your own risk. But we're identifying you as somebody that probably is not the best candidate for this kind of sport. And I think that's what needs to happen in the NFL, man. I mean, we've already got some identifiers, but if we get more and more and more, then you can look at these people and say, you shouldn't do this. It's going to, it's going to not, you're going to look back and it's not going to be worth it. And uh, I just think that that's uh, just courtesy. Yeah. And then anyone, everyone is, um, the ones making the decision for themselves. So if you provide the education for them, then they can take that information and make the call. Uh, so yeah. you don't have to make the call for them. Um, yeah. Uh, another question I have for you is kids tend to have atrocious diets. Um, most of them eat just processed processed junk left and right. That's all they feast on. Uh, So when someone comes in, they get a concussion and then you tell them that they need to eat a certain way to um, recover more fully from their concussion. Um, I feel like it'd be really difficult for them to stick with that. So what are some strategies that you have to make sure that uh, they follow suit so that they can fully recover? Yeah, it's always baby steps. You can't give somebody a histamine-free autoimmune protocol that's fasting and everything's, you know, free-range this and it you can you you make you can make this so difficult that the parents don't understand it, the kid doesn't understand it, and you have a greater chance of them to saying screw it and going out and eat whatever they want. You know what I would say is try to isolate some of the foods that they're craving the most or some of the foods that you know are a little bit more pro-inflammatory and then just kind of eliminating them. Maybe eliminate some of the higher glycemic foods. Maybe eliminate some of the the foods that you know are a little bit more pro-inflammatory. Maybe some of the dairy proteins, maybe some of the grains. And then try to just get them some good old-fashioned, you know, here's some meat, here's some vegetables, here's some fruit, 
simple foods that you can just prepare, not put a lot of stuff on them. Don't give large portions and, uh, you know, put it in the hands of a caregiver because a lot of people suffer from a head injury, man. It's, it's about convenience. Mm-hmm. Um, can it be delivered to them? That's pretty much what they want. Are And they certainly don't want to cook. So I think that what one of the, I think that one of the things we identified is that people that had good caregivers and that would listen to instructions and that would help them, you know, the injured person do what we asked, they really had a greater propensity of doing better. Right. Yeah. Baby steps are always helpful. Like you said, if you throw too much, then the overwhelm can outweigh the rewards. So slowly go into it. Do you have any other uh, things you would like to talk about when it comes to concussions that you want to make sure that everyone knows and understands? Well, I just think the the final thing is, you know, there's a lot of sports out there. First of all, I believe in physical fitness and I believe in sports 100%. No matter what your body type is, I think you can move. If you can't move, then that means, you know, you're, you're very, very injured. Um, but movement is really the, the cornerstone of life. It's as important as diet. And, you know, so I, again, I'm, I don't want to come across as anti any of these sports. My thing on football is I want people to be informed before they play. And I want them to know the risks. Potent, you know, potentially it would be beautiful if they knew their risks, not just everybody's, but there's, you know, specifically. But I would tell people to be active. And then I would tell people to pick sports that, you know, like I said, if you have to wear a helmet, man, that might be a bad sign. Um, but we know things like female soccer or, or even men's soccer, a lot of concussions. Number two, I, th- I believe number two is female soccer for concussions. Um, so I would just say that kind of stuff. And then, you know, just remember that football, you know, less than I think it's 0.3% of people are going to become professional football players. So if it doesn't work out, it's, it's okay. <laughs> and then the other thing I would say is if you're struggling with a concussion and you're starting to feel a little bit better, but you're not quite there yet, don't push it. And parents be protective and kids remember that, you know, you need your brain so you can have relationships when you grow up and you can have a job or you can go to school and do your homework, stuff like that. Those things become very important. It's very difficult for somebody to go out of the now and into the future and think, what if? Um, So I think that there's a lot of things that I would just want to summarize it. I I want better pre-testing. I want better informed consent. Um, I want some of these other sports that aren't as popular to become more recognizable and people to get into them. I want people to take their academic future and their relationship and behavioral and neurocognitive future seriously. And I want people to quit marginalizing this topic. Um, Man, people do everything they can to hide what this does to so many people. And by the time they're suffering from it, nobody cares about them anymore in the sporting field world. I know right now I can tell you at least 10 professional football players that I personally worked with. Nobody really brings these people up anymore, but they're living in hell. Hmm. And it's sad. Really, really sad. 
Yeah, that's not the way you really want to live the rest of your life. That's for sure. Um, so if people do want to um, get a little bit better pre-testing, um, what should people be looking for in a practitioner to help them? Well, they, you know, they need to A, be able to explain to them what a concussion is, B, be able to evaluate their balance, their eyes, their neurocognitive capacity. And then I would, I would really say that if somebody's not doing blood work and looking at them from a, a serological perspective also, I, I personally wouldn't go to them um, because there's so many. I mean, if somebody's anemic and they have a head injury, there's going to be problems. If somebody has a thyroid issue and they have a head injury, there could potentially be problems. There's simple things that are missed by the average practitioner that is a so-called head injury expert. Um, you know, so I would just say you got to find a practitioner that's well-rounded. And it doesn't, it crosses disciplines. I know PTs that are good. I know optometrists that are good. I know chiropractors that are good. Of course, I know MDs that are good. There's PhDs that understand a lot of stuff, even though they may not be clinical. They may be more sort of on the research side, but they still understand clinically what's going on. And there's all kinds of different practitioners that are really trained and have experience. So, you know, you need to find somebody that will evaluate everything and not just do one simple little test on a computer and say, yeah, you got a concussion or you don't. It just doesn't work good. Awesome. And then my final question for you is, um, do you have a morning routine that uh, you do that helps to keep you as healthy as possible and to start the day on the right foot? <laughs> just get up, man. <laughs> no, if I can, on a perfect day, I have a certain meal replacement shake I take. Um, I like to exercise a little bit. If I can exercise in the morning, that's the best for me, but it, sometimes it doesn't work out. If I can exercise a couple of days a week, I feel much better. Um, and then I, my biggest thing right now really is I just, I'm trying to get as much sleep as I can, you know, where it's not ridiculous. I want anywhere from seven to nine hours of sleep for me. Um, but I've been averaging four to six hours for the last couple of years, and that's obviously not good. So if I can get a good meal replacement in the morning, and I know my labs and I know my genetic risk factors uh, and I can take nutrition that will help keep those things at bay. And then the other thing I would say is just trying to minimize stress and the amount of time that you're uh, you know, away from your family or loved ones and you're just working, 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 working. Uh, I'm guilty of every single thing I'm telling you about, but it doesn't mean I still can't say it. I'm just saying that you need to learn to control those things a little bit to where you're not killing yourself slowly. Because that's pretty much what's happening. Right. And uh, with the uh, four to six hours of sleep, have you noticed um, what it does to you cognitively when you're getting that little of sleep? Yeah. It's just the difference between feeling good the next day and like crap the next day. I can make <laughs> it that simple. Uh, yeah. Sleep is definitely important. And uh, that seems to be one of the first things that we uh, give up is our quality of sleep. So, okay. So people can find you, um, in a few places. They can find you at innovativehealthdallas.com. Uh, the clinic is innovative health and wellness. You also have drbrocklectures.com. Um, is there any other place that you want people to look you up at? Um, foundation physicians group is one of the clinics I'm at innovative health and wellness.com. 
Um, we do do some lectures through uh, uh, functionalneurologyseminars.com. There's also btbhealthsystems.com. Uh, we could go on and on and on. I do a lot of work with different nutrition companies and stuff like that. Um, doing a lot of uh, work with Zymogen right now as, as far as nutrition is concerned. But there's so many good companies out there. But, you know, I can always just be Google Dr. Brandon Brock. You can figure out a way to get a hold of me pretty easy. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this information about concussions. Um, uh, I think a lot of people need to recognize that it is more than just a rest for seven day issue. Um, and so I think your strategy to uh, increase recovery uh, fully from a concussion is so much better than anything else I've seen out there. So thank you so much for providing that. You bet. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it. I hope now that you understand that to recover fully from a concussion, it is a lot more than just resting for 7 to 14 days. There's a lot of other components that are happening within the body, and it is a really big issue that we need to be taking care of within our uh, young athletes that we work with. So if you have kids that are in sports, or if you know of uh, people who have kids in sports, uh, make sure they listen to this episode because there's a lot that they should learn from this to be able to protect their kids as much as possible. Especially like we said, the majority of athletes do not become professional athletes. They will need to use their brains at some point in their life. All right, if you enjoyed this episode, then please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. Those ratings and reviews do make a difference to get our show out in front of more people. So if you go to summitforwellness.com slash iTunes, it takes about 20 seconds to do that for us. Keep climbing to the peak of your health, and we will see you next week.